Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. If you don't have it, go out and get it. Great music and entertainment all day that you can stream. And it's been a whirlwind week in the political world. Uh, every week seems to be an absolute whirlwind based on what we're going through. Uh, but we've had the first Trump rally since uh, coronavirus hit in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, that was a big one. Uh, we've had primaries in New York and Kentucky. And a lot of interesting um, trends coming out of that. We've also had some new polling uh, on the presidential race. We've had announcements with regard to the two conventions. Uh, it's just been entirely all over the place. And at the same time, we have a tremendous shift as far as coronavirus is concerned. A tremendous shift uh, from the epicenter of the Northeast and uh, the Northwest, I guess, but mostly the Northeast, down to the South and to the West, states like Texas, Arizona, Florida, now exploding with cases, so much so that the governors of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut have imposed a 14-day quarantine on people coming from states. I think nine states. I don't have that in front of me. But the nine states that are particularly hard hit right now with growth in coronavirus cases um, so this virus is not over, and I know a lot of people, uh, w since we were kind of so early affected by it, uh, and was so prevalent in many of our communities early on, that many of us are kind of thinking, okay, it's over, it's passed, it's washed over, and it in many ways it did, it kind of just came in a very intense uh, infection rapid infection wave in late March through April. And now that we're in June, it feels like it's yesterday's news in a lot of parts of New York and New Jersey and other parts of the Orthodox community. But elsewhere, it's not, that's not the case. Elsewhere, we see a tremendous spike in cases. Uh, 25 states now, that's half the country, is seeing growth, uh, significant growth in coronavirus. That means not just more cases on a gross number, but actually a percentage growth on a daily growth every day of more and more cases, which is a lot uh, for us to think about. Um, and in addition, we still have discussion of police brutality. We have discussion of monuments. We have, as I said, uh, new polling on the uh, presidential race. And we also have the John Bolton book, which was fought by the administration, um, strangely, I would say, and, and lost by the administration. So where do we start with this kind of week? Uh, what's been going on? Well, I think we start with the rally, um, the Trump rally. And there's no question the president thrives on these rallies, right? And 
He was looking to get back. He, he loves the element. He did not just one this week in Tulsa, but there was also one in Arizona for Turning Point uh, USA, which is a college group of uh, which was interesting in and of itself because once again, no social distancing, no masks, uh, uh, pretty much no masks. I don't want to say entirely no masks. And uh, Trump very much played to the crowd, played to his base uh, on on this. I don't, you know, Arizona at the same time is experiencing a surge in Corona cases. And we have a parallel universe, it seems, at the same time that one part of the government, meaning the health officials, are telling people that they should be careful and they should be distancing and they should be very cautious about a incredibly infectious disease that we have the president, we have others, members of Congress and others, other politicians, more on the political side, who have essentially kind of declared it over and we're moving on and we're opening up and this is how we have to go. But I saw from you know Governor Abbott in Texas, interestingly enough, basically said, and he was early on telling people, don't close and let's get back open. Uh, but if you're not careful and people aren't careful, we are going to have to, I mean, as a state, we're going to have to close again. And I think, you know, that's a scary thought for the U.S. economy right now when you think about it, that can we go back to this type of closure? Can the economy sustain it? Can the people sustain it? Can we, in fact, handle that? Anyway, what was the big story coming out of the rally? Well, there was announced by the campaign there was going to be a million tickets sold. There was going to be huge overflow. There was going to be thousands, hundreds of thousands of people going to show up in an arena that only sees 18,000. And of course, that was going to be a big problem. So they set up a stage outside and social distancing, masks, etc. Well, it turns out there were about 6,000 people inside. What happened? I mean, obviously, this is a debacle if you're a campaign. You always lower expectations. You don't set high expectations. For whatever reason, they did this. Uh, the characters involved, Brad Parscale, I, I, whatever. I mean, look, I mean, the bottom line is, I mean, Brad Parscale clearly is a, uh, is a, I don't want to take anything away from him because he has a, um, I think he has an incredible presence uh, that the president likes, likes the image, likes his toughness, and he's definitely a tough guy and certainly has proved himself in 2016. But in the end, he was the guy who did their digital operation, transitioned to who had never been involved in politics at all, uh, to running a presidential campaign and all that goes in, into it. Um, it's, it's, it's a big jump, and we're seeing now possibly some cracks, some fissures in the Trump operation. And by all accounts, I mean, let's just, and I know we like to go in the show, the actual business of politics itself, you would never do anything like this. Now, if Trump always breaks all conventions, so we don't want to, and he, he thrives on it, and he lives by it, and he's been successful by it. But the idea that you would go ahead and pro and promise huge crowds and even set up a venue outdoors because you were expecting that hundreds of thousands of people were going to come and they didn't materialize and the streets were empty and it looks embarrassing and you're going to blame protesters. In addition to that, of course, you have this problem, this pesky problem, I think, that some 
in the campaign or the White House might say of Corona before even before the rally, six staffers on the re-election campaign had tested positive. That news, of course, got out as it should. Why should we hide the fact that people are being infected with a potentially deadly disease? We should talk about that. We should that should be out there. So. And members of the Secret Service, etc. So I'm sure that that factored into the decision of many people to stay away from the rally because, of course, again, the rally, no social distancing, no masks, many people. And that's a problem because the guidance is telling you otherwise. Even if you want to support the president, even if you want to be there and feed off the energy of the rally and the fact that so many people do, there are a lot of people who are saying, do I want to risk my life on it? And, of course, there was that waiver that the campaign had everybody sign that you won't hold the campaign responsible for being infected with COVID, meaning that they're acknowledging that there is a danger. So what happens? Trump gets there and there aren't a lot of people and there are a lot of empty seats there. And clearly there's nothing. And by any stretch, a a rally of 6,000 people would be, especially in this environment, would be very impressive. But the problem is they promised a million people, or they promised at least there was going to be 100,000. It was going to be packed to the rafters. There's going to be people all over the place. They had this outdoor stage set up that everybody's taking a picture of. And, of course, it's a little bit embarrassing when you have that and you have no crowd around it. So they canceled that. They didn't speak outside. It was going to be huge, and it wasn't. And you know, that's right. now, of course, you know we see in the last couple of days their knives are out for Brad Parscale. He should be done. We get some professionals in there, get people who have done this before. And interestingly, uh, one thing that I have noticed over the last is reporting that Trump has been taking advice, at least in the campaign, not just Trump, has been taking. Number one, they brought back Jason Miller, um, who a uh, very skilled uh, communication strategist, which is a, which a good sign for the campaign uh, because he did an excellent job uh, in 2016. And uh, number two, that he's been conferring with the likes of Karl Rove, who... Certainly, there are people within the Trump orbit who feel that Karl Rove to establishment, Karl Rove doesn't know, not the right guy, not a good match for Trump, etc. But it's very interesting how this is happening. <clears throat> and the backdrop here, of course, um, well, the one thing that they're saying is protecting Brad Parscale is the Trump family. He's very close with Jared. He's very close with Don Jr., uh, he has very close with uh, Kimberly Guilfoyle, who's Don Jr.'s girlfriend, and Lara Trump as well. So he has effectively, he has learned the lesson um, that you see from all the books being written about Trump world, that it's all about the kids. If you are in with the kids, you'll be fine. If not, you are going to be on the outs. And uh, that seems to be... Uh, how it is and that's what we're saying so i think you would have uh, an issue with getting rid of him right now now against the backdrop of another i don't want to say devastating and let's let's be honest okay so the new york times but it's siena college it's a very reputable polling um and it's not just let's just look at some of the numbers that are going on within the um polling uh universe. Now, we talked about the CNN poll, which was 14 points, and the Trump campaign was suing them to get them to retract it. Well, guess what? The New York Times is now, you know, polled, and they polled back in, back in October, and it's 14 points, 50 to 36. Um, now, of course, you'll say, 
it doesn't really matter because it's the swing states that count. In Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, the ones that Trump carried and that he carried by, let's say, anywhere from one to or less than one in the case of Michigan um, uh, to four points. OK, so Michigan was the closest. Biden now up 47-36. Wisconsin, Biden now up 11. Pennsylvania, Biden up 10. Florida, Biden up six. Arizona, Biden up seven. North Carolina, Biden up nine points. Okay, these are the type of numbers that you have to start seeing a little bit of panic. Now, even if you discount some of these numbers, they are far outside the margin of error. And I think, you know, we know what's going on here because it's the it was the economy and it was the economy, it was the economy. And the reason voters want Trump is because of the economy. But if the economy is in the dumps, all of a sudden it's the other things that people care about. And the one thing I think that, and I think we, we, we discussed this a couple weeks back, if not a couple months back, was Trump's consistent criticism of Michigan and the way he singled out Michigan and encouraged protests in Michigan, etc. Uh, one thing that Michigan, Michigan voters said, 37% of Michigan voters who were... Uh, who were polled said that he treated Michigan worse than other states, um, which is probably not the way to win the state when it comes down to it. Now you can criticize the governor, you could criticize to a certain degree, but I guess there was this feeling out there that hand in handling of um, coronavirus in Michigan, they weren't too happy with it. Now, couple different cross tabs here um, with regard to overall overall uh, Trump still has a lead with male voters overall that on a plus two okay that's 10 points down though from the same poll in October with females Biden is up 19 points okay but the real interesting point here is that with white college educated females, it's 40 points. With white and college-educated all voters, females and males together, it's 21 points for Biden. So big numbers. And white, no college, Trump up 16, but that's a, that is eight points down from last time, meaning he was up 24 points. Now, white voters without a college degree have been the base, essentially, of with regard to um, uh, with, with, with have been the ba- the base of Trump support of 2016 and you know you could now see that there can be an issue um, these numbers could also imperil some of the or uh, some of the Senate candidates and Arizona, Iowa, Michigan, North Carolina, you see Democrats all ahead. Michigan, not necessarily not necessarily looking at a huge target state, but you see Democrats all ahead in these where states that Trump needs to win in order to win in 2016. Now, the question is now, so what do you do if you're the campaign? How do you respond? How do you act? How do you do it? And a lot of people want to kind of, a lot of Republicans want now, to, you know, there to be a focus on, 
let's get back to governing. Let's get back to doing. Let's tackle the coronavirus. Let's do the thing. Let's let's handle the race relations things. Now, in the Senate, they're not getting any cooperation from the Democrats. Um, as shocking as that may sound, although not at all, because the Democrats are going far left themselves. We'll talk about that in a moment. But yesterday in in the Senate, unfortunately, Democrats blocked the passage of Tim Scott's police reform bill. And it's kind of like, let's do something. Let's accomplish something. But the world, unfortunately, is so polarized that we can't accomplish, seem to accomplish anything in Washington these days. And, of course, the Democrats are going to pass their own bill in the in the House uh, probably today. And the Republicans seem to be agitating against it. Uh, I don't know that there are most, let's say, vast majority of the country, including Republicans, believe that reform is needed of policing. It just is. doesn't mean every, every cop is bad at all. It's quite the opposite. It just means institutionally, everything, things need reform. Things need change. The times change. We need change. There's nothing wrong with that. But... I think what a number of senators are saying, including some in the leadership, are saying that Trump needs to change his tone. That the rhetoric, let's say, with regard to corona and with regard to race relations, with regard to the rioters and him lumping together um, peaceful protesting and looters in Antifa and all this stuff, and you know, a lot of the rhetoric that is coming out of the White House and the comment about Kung Flu which got great laughs in Arizona uh, amongst a highly partisan crowd, but for a lot of people who were not there probably made them cringe. And they just, they're not, a lot of Americans are not necessarily looking for that, especially in a time of turmoil for the president essentially to create more. And don't take it from me. Um, Senate Majority Whip John Thune his his statement was he's good with the base, but all of the people who are going to decide November are the people in the middle. And I think they want a president at a time like this to strike a more empathetic tone. I'll probably require not only a message, it'll probably require not only a message that deals with substantive policy, but I think a message that conveys perhaps a different tone. And... A lot of Republicans are waiting for him to rise to the moment of uniting the country, getting it together, because we believe that his policies and Republican policies are better for the country. But when we're fighting these culture wars and we're fighting essentially for Confederate generals to maintain their who committed treason against the United States of America, let's not. That's not we we don't we don't name monuments after people who committed treason against their country, and some of them were not even particularly distinguished generals. But don't take it from me. Again, Senate Judiciary Chairman Lindsey Graham, close ally of Trump. We we all know that, right? He said it's been a bad couple of weeks, and structurally we got to up our game. I just think sort of the cultural wars, the Democrats are on the wrong side of that. But at the end of the day, I think a little more message discipline would help. And he's saying that towards the president. He's let's let's get on message. Let's 
you know, let's get the theme. Like when I said when he went to the church, right, he should have been there sitting with, instead of holding up the Bible and taking some kind of strange picture showing it, he should have been there leading the country in prayer. That would have been, there would have been something there. And you don't get the fact, you don't get the sense that the president is empathetic, that he's the looking for consolation, that like when other tragedies happens, other presidents have gone there in order to console the people. And he's legitimately making wars out of the idea that of tearing down these monuments. Um, there's this whole movement now to get rid of Teddy Roosevelt, um, which is, uh, thankfully, there are some Democrats standing up for, for TR, a New York State hero, an American hero, great president. And I saw, which I thought was the most absurd statement from Corey Johnson, the Speaker of the New York City Council. And this is how crazy it is that they should take the statue of Thomas Jefferson out of City Hall because he was a slave master. Now, I don't want to, not excusing slavery, I'm not, but number one, different time. But number two is, are you going to leave the Democratic Party too? Because guess who the founder of your political party was? Thomas Jefferson. So if you're willing to wash him out of history and yet, well, maybe you need to go ahead and create your own political party because Thomas Jefferson would not be the right guy. And there are plenty of Democratic political clubs named for Jefferson. Of course, there's the Jefferson, there's, I mean, Thomas Jefferson is a heroic figure, our third president. I mean, just a, a part of American history. Yes, he had slaves. Yes, it was a different time. Yes, but he didn't take up arms against the American government. He didn't rebel. He didn't, for that perspective, it's a different time at the, at the time. So, I mean, and then, of course, President Trump had this issue this week as well when Lindsey Graham talks about message discipline is in entertain the idea that he would embrace he would meet with Nicolas Maduro the dictator of Venezuela who is literally killing his country and that's got to cost him votes in Florida which is a crucial state it's the message discipline is lax now you see what am i showing from this in these kind of statements is these crazy statements on the left Corey Johnson you got these and you have the president failing to capture the center. There's a lot of center out there. There are a lot of voters who just want normalcy. They just want to be safe. They just, they acknowledge that the police are great, but they need reform. And we can get behind that. Let's figure out how to do that. But let's not inflame race relations. Let's not fight culture wars all the time. And I think that that's what they're doing. And we have Democrats who are fighting these culture wars as well. And you don't see that you see the fight amongst the Democrats significantly with uh, regard to this Tuesday's primaries, particularly in New York, uh, especially into the Democratic safe seats, which would be known as safe seats, New York 16, New York 17, retiring Nita Lowy in New York 17. Uh, there was a seven, eight way primary, a lot of white, um, many of them Jewish, moderate uh, Democrats running, and one unabashed progressive uh, named Amandir Jones. Uh, it's the two counties, Westchester and Rockland, and Jones running on the far left of the electorate here uh, is looks like, and there's a lot of paper ballots out there, a lot of 
ballots waiting to be counted because many people voted absentee because of the coronavirus. It was much easier to do so. A lot of ballots out there waiting to be counted. So what uh, what does this mean? Well, we are um, uh, we what the Democratic Party at the same time, instead of trying to capture that center, is going for a far left message um, and universal health care, all these things they're sending. What you had was a uh, turning out long term incumbents. Uh, some of them Jewish in the case of Elliot Engel here, which is in New York 16, which straddles the northern Bronx as well as southern Westchester, uh, for Jamal Bowman, who also was um, uh, also ran far to the left. Uh, now, Elliot Engel had his own issues, and I, I think that this race is noteworthy because two years ago, as we know, AOC unseated Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, shocked the world and unseated Joe Crowley, who was a uh, also a leadership figure in the Democratic Party, uh, a white male in a changing district. But you had somebody in Elliot Engel, a, a chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, very powerful committee in Washington, uh, seemed to have forgotten about the district. He didn't learn any lessons. Crowley was criticized because he lived in Virginia. Elliot Engel essentially lived in Maryland and didn't come back for the three months of the coronavirus and essentially was found to do that. He says, why well, very busy in Washington? Well, if you look at people who have had these types of problems, Joe Crowley, Eric Cantor on the Republican side, people who lost touch with their district and people, voters felt out of touch. You have to remember that bottom line is even if you're in leadership, even if you think you're a, a big to do in Washington, many of the voters out there want to feel that they have a connection with you. In addition, Elliot Engel just inexplicably uh, just ran a, a best lackluster campaign. Now, what what's the connection between these two, Mondor Jones and Jamal Bowman? Um, they, the two of them, so do not seem to be, let's say, what we put in the pro-Israel camp. Um, many, both of them are willing to entertain criticism of Israel, certainly not Democratic pro-Israel stalwarts like Nita Lowy and uh, Elliot Engel, which could be a problem for the Democrats. This could be a problem for Jews, could be a problem for Israel. Now, we want to have a situation where the pro-Israel Democrat is kind of falling by the wayside, which is which would be a terrible thing, I think, for our community, for Israel, overall for bipartisan support. And that is definitely a fear as to what's going on right now. Now, pro-Israel groups in this race, Democratic Majority for Israel, headed by Mark Melman, they spent $2 million in New York 16 to try and save Elliot Engel and ran negative ads against Jamal Bowman, which were criticized even by Bernie Sanders. Uh, then, of course, they congratulated Bowman afterward and say, we congratulate him. Uh, you know, the problem is for most of these voters in these districts is that Israel does not rate, even amongst uh, the polling shows, even amongst many of the Jews in the district, Israel does not rate necessarily high on the list of priorities. And that is not going to determine, especially in a primary, when you get the most partisan voters, is going to determine uh, their vote. One shot I saw, which is particularly noteworthy, was the line at Yonkers High School in Yonkers, New York, just north of New York City. 
the line for voting in this primary was stretched for blocks and blocks and blocks all the way around. It was quite remarkable uh, when I saw that picture on TV that people waiting in line for up to three, four hours in order to vote. So number of other races, uh, Democrat, Republican primaries uh, here in New York. Um, and you have uh, uh, Andrew Garbarino and Mike LePetri to replace Peter King. Um, that will be a very, very competitive race. Um, at New York 4, which was uh, Cindy Gross versus Doug Tooman. That, that one was not close. Uh, and New York 17, um, and also... Um, also, Republican primary not close. Chris Jacobs won on the same day, not just a special election, but also won a uh, uh, special election to fill Chris Collins's seat. Um, he'll, he'll immediately go to Congress. Uh, he also won a Republican primary on the same day that will take him into November, and you'll have a rematch of that same race. That's it for here uh, uh, this week here on Spin Class here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for. J- Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.